New Year's is indeed coming up this week. And you know, I know so many people that do New Year's resolutions. How many of you do New Year's resolutions? Okay, so some of you, I see. You know, we did some New Year's goals resolutions in 2020, and then 2020 just went <laughs> So that's the way it is. But, you know, we look forward to the new year. And this time of year, in fact, this week, I, I promise you, I assure you, this week and probably the next few weeks, online and on TV, you're going to see advertisements you're just gonna get bombarded with the before and after pictures. You know what I'm talking about? Slim Fast, Weight Watchers, Peloton, our neighbor to the south, Planet Fitness. You're gonna see a before and after picture. And we're intrigued by that. We're intrigued by that idea. You have the before, and then you have the, oh, the glorious, new, improved, transformed after. And I mean, like, you know, four years ago, I came, we moved here from Nevada four years ago, and I was this scrawny, string bean, young guy, and now, look, I have the physique of a muscle-bound bodybuilder. I mean, you guys are laughing a little too hard. <laughs> I don't know what to think about that. No, I am not a good example of a before and after, but some of you are. Some of you have lost weight over the last several months, and praise God, and, you know, changes have happened, and it's been really good. We love before and after photos. I think psychologically because we like to think, we like to know that change is still possible. That people can change. That we can change. That I can change. And that's why we're drawn to before and after photos and even more than that, before and after stories. We heard a really good one on Christmas Eve and if you have not yet seen the online Christmas Eve service, oh my goodness, you need to do that this afternoon. It's so good. It's gonna be an emotional roller coaster for you. I cried like three times. So, so good. And one of the stories in the Christmas Eve service was Keith Elder, who I've gotten to know over the last uh, couple years and, uh, and his wife Kylie, who's been a longtime Bethel member. They, 20 years ago, partied it up. I mean, they lived a raucous lifestyle. She gets saved, Kylie gets saved, and is completely transformed. Pulls a 180 through Jesus, and Keith sees that, and he despises God, he despises the church. He would drive by Bethel and say, I, will, I, I am never going to darken the doorstep of that place with my presence, never. He wanted nothing to do with God, Christians, church. He was antagonistic toward Jesus and the gospel. And then a year ago, Keith got saved. Come on, get excited about that. Anytime we have a new brother and sister in Christ, that is something to rejoice about, a new creation. And he was a new creation. I saw the before and after picture. I knew him before and I saw the after. And I told him, Keith, Something has changed. There's a transformation. You look different. Like, you literally look different. He exuded joy. He had this excitement over him that was unparalleled. He was just, he was, he was transformed. So much so that in the video that we saw on Christmas Eve, you know, this last summer he talks about how he was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And he calls cancer a blessing. Who calls cancer a blessing? I'll tell you who, someone whose mind and heart has been transformed by Jesus through the gospel. That's who. That's what the gospel does. It transforms. There's a before and an after picture. That's really what baptism is. It's a symbolic representation of the before and after where Jesus changes us. And that's what we're looking at this morning. The main idea is this. God transforms slaves into sons. Now, as a caveat, every time you see sons in this passage, it's sons and daughters. He's not only talking to men. It's implied. God transforms slaves into sons and daughters through his son. So turn to Galatians 
chapter 4 in your Bibles or on your phone. Galatians chapter 4. You know, if you've been at Bethel for any length of time, you know that we've been going through the book of Romans, which has been so good, right? Have you guys been blessed by Romans? Man, it's been so good. I know it's just been refreshing and nourishing to my soul. It's just heavy doctrine and practical theology. It's been really, really good. Well, Galatians is a mini Romans, both written by the Apostle Paul. And Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, which is modern-day central Turkey, writing to the Christians there about maintaining the purity and pure integrity, the implications of the gospel. In fact, he says, if I preach a different gospel to you later, don't believe me. If an angel preaches a different gospel to you, don't believe that angel. There is one gospel. They had some troublesome false teachers who were creeping in, trying to deter the people from the gospel of grace to works-based righteousness. And that's what worldly philosophies do. They always seek to water down grace and pump up works-based self-righteousness. But Paul says, no, 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 no. There is one Jesus, one Savior, one Lord, one gospel, one unadulterated good news of the grace, beautiful grace of Jesus. Oh, the preciousness of the doctrine of justification. This incredible doctrine that says that by faith, God declares us righteous. He makes us righteous. We are in right standing with God, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he has done, not because of religion or good works or calling ourselves a Christian or doing good things, but only through grace by faith in Jesus. I was talking to someone recently and they said, yeah, but that's too good to be true. Exactly. It sounds too good to be true. It seems too good to be true. But folks, I'm telling you, it is true. That is grace. And Paul says, he talks about Abraham, Father Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish people who became righteous by faith. He believed God and and it was credited, righteousness was credited to him, to his account. And so we, those of faith in Jesus, we are children of Abraham, sons and daughters of the promised covenant between God and his people. We inherit what God promised Abraham, which leads to verse 29 of chapter three. And now it's not on the screen, so just follow along in in your Bibles. It says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now go to chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. You know when someone comes up to you and they say, uh, hey, listen, I got good news and bad news. Now, I don't know how you handle that, but I always want to know, okay, give me the bad news first, rip it off like a band-aid, let's get this over with, and then we'll chase it with the good news. We'll end on a high note. Well, verses one through three is the setup. This is bad news, at least initially. Paul gives this analogy. He says, imagine an infant in a royal family, a wealthy family, and even though he has an immense amount of wealth waiting for him as an inheritance, and a large amount of clout and influence and prestige, fame and fortune, it doesn't matter because he is completely, utterly helpless. As a baby, he is dependent on his guardians and caregivers for his estate, the stewards of his estate. And so technically, Paul says, he is no better off than one of the hired servants. 
Babies do not have autonomy. You know, we have a couple little girls, and honestly, I, I kind of miss the baby stage. Now, don't tell my wife that. Uh, but I kind of miss the baby stage. You know, we have uh, two little girls, and, and when they throw a tantrum, you know, we have to send them to the room and punish them. But with a baby, if a baby throws a temper tantrum, you just pick them up and put them in their crib. Like, they have no will of their own. They're just like, all right, I guess this is happening. They can't make decisions on their own. And this is what Paul is saying. They have no autonomy. They have no freedom. They can't make decisions. They can't feed themselves. They, they can't even go to the bathroom by themselves. And I don't, by the way, I don't miss changing diapers. That's, poopy diapers are not fun. So how then would a baby run a business? How would he rule a kingdom? He is the rightful heir to the throne. He's the heir de jour, the heir by right or the heir by law, but he is not yet the heir de facto. And so the child would have guardians, caregivers, not to make him royal, but to help point him in the right direction. And he is helpless, he's under their control. And Paul refers to the law as our guardian, showing us how righteous God is and simultaneously how unrighteous we are. Showing us, uh, pointing our, to our need for righteousness without the ability to make us righteous. So many times I'll talk to someone who's not yet a believer and they'll say, this all sounds good, it's too good to be true, it sounds like. But listen, first let me clean myself up, myself up and then I will come to God which used to frustrate me, but then I kind of realized they half get it. They half get it. They understand their sinfulness. They understand their inadequacies. They understand that we are dirty and filthy, morally impure, but they are totally missing the boat on the fact that we cannot clean ourselves up. You, you remember uh, amusement parks? Remember those things pre-COVID? Remember lines? Remember when we used to wait in line? to get on a roller coaster. Well, imagine you're a kid. Maybe this was you. This was me when I was a kid and you get on the, the, in line in the ride you want to go on and you get to the front and there you see the dreaded sign you don't want to see. What's it say? You must be this tall to ride. Like the movie Big with Tom Hanks. You remember that movie? You must be this tall to ride. Well, the law says, God's perfect moral standards say, you must be this perfect, this holy, this good to be righteous. And we fall oh so short of that standard. We fall short of the law. We are not this righteous to ride, if you will. But look at verse 3. Notice what Paul says. He, he uses first-person pronouns taking ownership. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were ch children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We all have the same problem, enslavement. To put it another way, we were rotten. Now that sounds harsh, but it's true. You look at Romans 3 that we went through a couple years ago. We were rotten. We had no good in and of ourselves. Paul says, you know, there is no one who is good. There is no one who is righteous. There is no one who seeks after God. We are all together rotten. We were rotten. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And apart from God's intervention, we are perpetually stuck in helplessness. Unsuitable to be the child of God, destined to be a slave to the basic principles of the world. Well, what are the basic principles of the world? 
well, what does, what, what does the world pursue? What kind of things does the world pursue? Well, all people follow their own way, on their own strength, according to their own rules, on their own effort, through their own unregenerate nature to achieve salvation. And so for Jewish people or religious people back then or religious people now, this was works-based righteousness by the law. It was the rat race of religion. Am I good enough? God, have I done enough? Have I pleased you enough? Have I measured up enough? And it is enslavement. Or for others, this is hedonistic philosophies where self is God. Have I done enough to please myself? Have I done enough to make me happy? I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. I will do whatever makes me happy. Grasping after whatever I want. And grasping after whatever I want does not lead to self-mastery. It leads to slavery. We never measure up. We never achieve those standards. They will never satisfy. And so we just keep digging a pit. We're in this hole that we can't get ourselves out of. We can't climb out of. We're deep in this hole. And we think, well, let me just dig deeper. Let me dig deeper. Let me dig deeper. And that's how I'm going to get myself out. And we go deeper and darker into this great abyss, deeper into this pit, this pit, thinking, let me just, let me try this, let me try this, let me try this, as we go deeper and deeper and deeper, digging ourselves in. It's enslavement to self, helpless bondage. Things like pornography. You ever talk to a man or woman who's steeped in pornography and there is bondage there? You see the mental and spiritual shackles on them. Well, let me, just, let me just get more pleasure out of this. I watch this thing, I look at this thing, and maybe that will make me happy, that'll make me content. And they go deeper and deeper into it. It's an addiction. Pornography, make no mistake, is an addiction, and they get deeper and deeper into that pit. Things like success. Well, let me just climb the corporate ladder. If I have this position, oh, then I'll arrive. And once you get that position, well, I really need this position. And you just keep climbing and keep climbing, achieving more money, more power, more authority. And it is a never-ending battle. Or maybe religious experiences or behavior modification. If I just feel this or do that, if I change this about myself, or what about people-pleasing? That might be the worst trap of all. Oh, I just want to please my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my husband, my wife, my kid, my parent, my coworker, my friend, my neighbor, if I just please them, if I, if I satisfy them and I meet their approval, then they will meet my approval, then they will please me, and it's this codependency spiral downward, digging ourselves into the pit deeper. Glenn Scrivener says, we fixate on something to give us the meaning and significance that ought to come from God. We live for people's love. We live for people's respect. We live for the weekend. But all these little gods make us anxious because they might fail us or we might fail them. If God is our career, we better not lose our job. If our God is good looks, we better not get old. If our God is family life, everyone had better be happy and healthy. Humans are always taking the good things of this world and turning them into God things. But the gods of this world will never satisfy when you get them. Hmm. And the world is governed completely by these principles. Worldly allures that overpromise and infinitely underdeliver. And they bring nothing but shame and guilt 
and disillusionment and discouragement and bitterness and despair and enslavement. It's bad news so far, right? But look again at verse 3. Here's the turnaround. Notice what he says. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we what? What's that next word? Come on. We were, we were, I just ruined it. Sorry. (laughs) We were enslaved. Past tense. Not future tense. Not present tense. Not we are. Not we will be. We were. We are no longer slaves to this world because Verses four and five, and this is the crux of the passage. There's a switch that happens here. A light switch of the gospel turns on a turning point of salvation history, but God. Look at verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Someone say hallelujah. Oh, that is good. Christians, this should bring us joy. We should get excited and pumped up about this. This is flat-out gospel. But God. Some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture are these words of contrast. But God. I was stuck in depravity. I was deprived and depraved. But God. I was grotesque. But God. I was enslaved. But God. I was imprisoned. But God. But God in the fullness of time. See, in in antiquity, the father would set the time for when a boy would become a man. There was some kind of rite of passage for this. Today in Jewish culture, they have the, the bar mitzvah that celebrates this. But God did not wait for us to grow up because that would never happen on our own. We were helplessly dead in our sin while we were held under the helpless, oppressive slavery to feeble, vain self righteousness. God said, Enough. Enough. I am sending my son to redeem you. You are slaves no more. And he does this in the fullness of the time. At the appointed time, when the opportunity was ripe, at just the right time. I think of, you know, expectant mothers who are nine months pregnant. And you go up to them and they're like, oh, when's the baby due? Two weeks ago! And, you know, they're they're stressed like, oh, they're eating hot peppers. They're, you know, jumping up and down on a trampoline like, okay, baby, you know, you are way past overdue on your rent. <laughs> you got to vacate the premises. This tenant has got to leave. They are ready to have that baby. There's, an, there's a level of eager expectation. They're ready at any minute. It's the fullness of the time. And the, the fullness of that expectation is growing and growing. Anyone can look at the world. Anyone can look at themselves and see that something is not right. Something is very wrong. There's got to be more to life than this. Something is not right. Everyone is looking for a hero. When is my hero going to come save me? When is our hero going to come save us? And so for centuries before Jesus came, the Jewish people were looking forward to a savior, Messiah. With eager, pregnant expectation, if you will. Hope and expectation was growing of the Savior Messiah who would set us free from our bondage and at just the right time, God sent forth his son. At just the right time. Now, why not earlier? Have you ever thought about that? Why not 2,500 years ago or 3,000 years ago? Why why 2,000 years ago? Well, from a human standpoint, it makes sense. According to the Christian historian Craig Blomberg, There were several things that allowed Christ's time on earth to be the perfect time to allow for the rapid spread of Christianity. 
Greek was the trade language. It was the most international spoken language, and so people from different lands could speak and preach the gospel to one another pretty easily. Jesus was born during a period called the Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. And it was a time of relative peace in the Roman Empire where you know, it allowed for no violent obstacles, at least for a while, until Emperor Nero to the spread of Christianity. Rome had developed the best roads and communication systems the world had ever seen, and so the gospel message could spread rapidly and quickly and efficiently. Christianity was also under the religio licita, which was a government-mandated protection of Judaism. And back then, most people thought of Christianity as just another sect of Judaism. And so for a while, they enjoyed the government-mandated protection that allowed the, go- the gospel to spread. But regardless, regardless of the reason that, that the Father chose 2,000 years ago, we know Galatians 4.4, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. God sent forth his Son. It's the word apostled. Like an apostle is one who is sent out. God apostled his son. You think of, you know, when you call 911, when there's an emergency, the hospital, the, uh, the ambulance office dispatches paramedics, dispatches an ambulance. They apostle an ambulance. They send forth an ambulance. God dispatched his son with a designated purpose, and this is the Christmas message. This is what we celebrate, the birth and incarnation of Jesus that God sent forth his son. It's the epitome of our sermon series, To You From Above. And praise God that he sent forth his son. Amen? Timothy George says it this way, God sent his son not just from Galilee to Jerusalem, not just from the manger to the cross, but all the way from heaven to earth. And the full implications of this text can hardly be grasped in human language. By sending Jesus, in sending Jesus, God did not merely only send a substitute or a surrogate. He came himself. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That means Jesus was from God and from man. Jesus was the possessor of two perfectly united natures, humanity and divinity. And he had to be this way. It had to be this way. It's the only way that his redeeming death on the cross works. He had to be fully human to pay the penalty on our behalf, on the behalf of humanity's sins, but he also had to be perfect, to be the perfect sacrifice because only a perfect sacrifice would suffice to pay for our sins and only God is perfect. So simultaneously, he was fully God and fully man, fully divine and fully human, the perfect representation and mediator of both. And as the God-man, Jesus bridged the gap between God and man to reconcile us. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This means that he lived perfectly. He fulfilled the law in a way that we never could. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserve. He measured up to this standard. You must be this righteous, this good, this holy to have right standing with God, and Jesus met that perfectly. Where we all fail to live up to God's perfect moral standards, the law, Jesus did not fail in the slightest. You know when someone says that they are living vicariously through someone else? Like if a, if a parent says, I'm living vicariously through my child, that means they are living through the experiences of that child as if it's their own. Like their identities are intertwined. 
And we, by faith, live vicariously through Jesus. By faith, Jesus is our vicarious representative. We vicariously fulfill the law through him. So he met this standard. He did measure up. He fulfilled the law. And by faith, we vicariously fulfill the law with him and through him. So God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those under the law. We were rotten, but church, we are redeemed. Who's excited about that? We are redeemed. Folks, this is amazing. To redeem something is to gain possession of something in exchange for payment. And to redeem those under the law means that God paid the redemption price on our behalf for our freedom. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I picture us on a platform, broken and bound and beaten, whipped and enslaved, shackled by our master sin as the chains weigh heavy. We are wearied and worn down by the weight of the chains around our neck and the shackles on our hands and feet. And we are despondent, we're in despair, we are without hope. And in walks our Lord. And he says, set them free, they're mine. I want them, they're mine. No, 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 you can't set them free. There's too high a price. Okay, then how about the price of my infinitely perfect, holy, righteous son? How about his blood? Is that enough? And the chains fall off and the shackles are broken. And God pays the redemption price for our freedom through the blood of his son. You know, the last few weeks with our daughters, we've been going through the Advent passages, the Christmas passages through scripture. And I remember a few days ago, I'm going through a passage on the crucifixion and resurrection. And our oldest daughter says, but daddy, that's an Easter passage. That's not a Christmas passage. I said, oh, sweetie, every Christmas passage is an Easter passage, and every Easter passage is a Christmas passage because Jesus came and was born to die for us. And so Christmas and Good Friday and Easter are inextricably linked. Now, if the good news stopped right here at the redemption of Jesus, at the, at the fact that we are redeemed and that we are made righteous, that would be good news, right, church? That would be fantastic. That would be great news. But here's the thing. The sentence doesn't stop there. He did all this so that we might receive adoption as his children. Come on now. How good is that? We are adopted by the king of kings. The Romans had this custom called the liberalia, and it was a coming-of-age party, a rite of passage, if you will, where a child would be merely declared a child until a designated time where the father deemed otherwise at this celebration. And so the father would look at his child, look at his son, and declare him to truly be his son and truly be his heir. And they would take what was called the toga virilis, and they would put it upon him. They would clothe him with this symbol of celebratory manhood, and then they would give him responsibilities as an adult. And when Jesus came, when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, Christians, friends, listen, this was our liberalia moment. 
This was our moment of freedom and liberty through Jesus, through faith in him. The father declares, you are mine. You are my adopted child. You are my son. You are my daughter. And the actual son of God became the vilest of all criminals, the worst of all sinners. He was clothed in our sin on the cross so that we could be clothed in his righteousness and declared God's adopted children, the heir de jour and the heir de facto. So through Jesus, men, if you have trust in Jesus, that makes you a son of the king. And a son of the king is otherwise known as what? A prince. Ladies, if you have trusted in Jesus, you are a daughter of the king. And that makes you a what? Princess. I'm looking at a room full of princes and princesses of the king if you have trusted in Jesus. Now, with two little girls at our, at our house, we watch a lot of Disney princess movies. Oh, so many princess movies. <laughs> but one of my favorites, actually, is the movie Aladdin. Aladdin, you have this boy who, he's, you know, a riffraff, street rat. I don't buy that. <laughs> and this, this, this scrub from the slums of Agrabah, he, he is sent into the cave of wonders. <laughs> and he goes into this cave and he finds the lamp. By the way, if I'm ruining this for you, this movie's been out for like 30 years. That's on you. No spoiler alert here. So he goes and he finds this lamp, the genie lamp, and he rubs the lamp and out comes the genie and oh, you ain't ever had a friend like him. And here this genie just grants him these wishes and he gets might and power and he becomes rich and wealthy and famous and, you know, all fortune beyond his wildest dreams to the point where he enters into Agrabah with great gold and he's standing on, uh, sitting on an elephant with armies and, you know, here comes the prince Ali, mighty as he, Ali Ababa, strong as ten regular men. Okay, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> I told you, I have little girls. Get into it. Now that song's going to be in your head the rest of the day. Uh, you're welcome. So here he comes in, and it's just this rags to riches story. And I'm not going to tell you how it ends, but we love rags to riches stories because we want to have rags to riches stories. And I don't even think so much internally, you know, materially, or, or we want physical wealth. We want rags to riches stories spiritually, and we have it through the gospel infinitely more so than Aladdin. Rags to riches, rags to royalty, and we see that in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Whew. That's good. Oh, but it gets better. Wait, there's more. First, we were rotten. Then we are redeemed and made righteous. But more than that, we are royal. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Again, it says that God has sent. It's the same word as before. The Apostello, he has sent out, but this time it is his spirit. This is a highly Trinitarian verse. You have the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And it may be difficult for us to describe the doctrine of the Trinitarian nature of God, but through justification and our adoption by God, we experience the love of the triune God. And so the spirit of his Son is in our hearts crying out, Abba, Father. 
The Lord is the ultimate divine adoption agency. Adoption is beautiful. There's this sense of belonging and love. So what does Abba mean? Well, it's not a Swedish band from the 70s. There is no dancing queen here. (laughs) Really bad dad joke. I'm sorry. Abba was an Aramaic word. Aramaic was the common language spoke back then. It was the language that Jesus would have spoken. And so this, this word Abba pointed to the love and affection and closeness that you had in family. It, it, it was personal. God is your personal father, which was countercultural and even would have been blasphemous to Jewish people back then. They might have called God the father or the father in heaven, but never my father, never our father. Timothy George again says, the word Abba appeared in certain legal Jewish texts as a designation used by grown children in claiming the inheritance of their deceased father. Abba is not so much associated with infancy as it is with intimacy. It is a cry of the heart, not a word spoken calmly with personal detachment and reserve, but a word that we cry out. So the Holy Spirit gives us a longing and adoration for our Heavenly Father. You know, when my girls say the word daddy, you know, let's say I'm in my office at home working on a sermon. I'm not like, get away. Can't you see I'm busy? Can't you see I'm working on a sermon about how we are adopted and God is our father? Get away from your father. You know, that would, first of all, that'd make no sense. But no, they can call on me whenever, wherever they want, and they immediately have my attention with one single word, daddy. Now, if you call me daddy, that would be weird. (laughs) Please don't do that. But there's power in that word when it comes from the lips of your child. How much more does our Heavenly Father delight when we cry out, Daddy, Abba, my Father. God wants that. He wants that. He wants us to love and desire His fatherly affection, which we have full access to in Christ. Interestingly, Paul uses the word cry out. We don't just say Abba Father. We cry out from, this is the cry from the heart of a child. There's a sense of desperate dependence here. In the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 14, Jesus cries out, Abba Father, in his despair. Abba Father. And now he shares that filial right with us. And when you are made righteous by grace through faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of his Son, allows you to cry out to God, not as a slave, but as his child. Oh, the outcry of joyful jubilation and recognition. When you realize your status, that you are righteous, you are redeemed, and you are royally adopted by the King of all kings, what a sweet response when we cry out, what? Abba, Father. And then you look at verse 7. And we go from being a slave to being a son or daughter to being an heir of God. In first century Roman culture, when someone was adopted, he was deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name, to inherit his estate. And so he was granted the full rights and privileges and responsibilities of sonship in that family, which meant full inheritance. In fact, this actually happened with Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar did not have a son of his own, and so Caesar, the Roman emperor, in his will, he wrote in, named and adopted his great nephew Octavian to become his son, to become his heir, and Octavian would later become Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, when Jesus was born. 
Adoption begins at a parent's initiative. We were pursued by God. God set his sights on your soul, and he would not let go. He gave his only son to make you his. Do you grasp the love of our father? Furthermore, adoption is permanent. There is no unadoption. When you are an adopted son you are, or daughter, you are a son or daughter forever. There is no need to fear losing your status as a son or daughter. Everything can be taken away from us. If we've learned anything in 2020, it's that we can lose everything and anything, but not this, never this. And if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God. An heir is a beneficiary who receives something as a possession because of their status as a child. You know, people will draft their loved ones into their will. And by doing so, they're saying, hey, when I pass on, I will bequeath my possessions to you, to those they love. So they write people into your will. What would you do if a billionaire, let's say Jeff Bezos, richest man in the world who owns Amazon, wrote you into his will? First of all, you are free to tithe if that happens. <laughs> Just kidding. What would you do? Probably celebrate. That'd be really exciting, right? But do you understand that this inheritance we have is far greater, infinitely greater than all the riches of this world. We inherit what Jesus has. And so as an adopted son or daughter of a king, you inherit everything that a prince or princess would. You are treated as royalty and you are granted full privileges of a child. This is the great reversal of status. It's the ultimate before and after picture. We go from being slaves to, uh, to sin, to being sons and daughters of the king of all kings, to reigning with him as his heirs. I mean, what kind of king would do that? What kind of king would take an enemy? And make no mistake, Romans 5.10 says, we were enemies of God. What kind of king would take an enemy of him, purchase that enemy by the blood of his own son, adopt him or her, and make him or her his own child, and then bequeath everything to that child. Who does that? I'll tell you who, our God. And in our finite human wisdom, this makes no sense. This seems too good to be true, but that's the beauty of grace. That's what makes grace so countercultural and counterintuitive. God's love is powerful and profound. And as adopted children of God, we inherit all that belongs to the Son of God. So what treasures do we inherit as God's adopted royal children? Or to put it as Ephesians 3, 8 says, what are the unsearchable riches of Christ? Well, John 14, we get a heavenly home forever. Matthew 22, Jesus says, you will dine with me at my table in a heavenly banquet forever and ever and ever. We get to dine with the Lord. We get to rule with Jesus, 2 Timothy 2.12 and Romans 4.13. We get to be like Jesus, not becoming gods, but living eternally sinless in all his glory, according to 1 John 3. But greater than all that is the fact that we get to enjoy and partake of the presence and glory of our God forever and ever and ever. Amen. This is good news, and this good news far surpasses the bad news. And so... We were rotten, but we are redeemed, and we are righteous, and through Jesus, we are royal. God transforms slaves into sons and daughters through his son. So live out of your new identity. Don't go back to the old. 